Welcome to your Digital Mentor Podcast. I'm Isabella Mota from Welcome Connecting Science. And today we are going to discuss academia versus industry. So if you are struggling to decide on a career path, this episode is for you. You have our honorable guest, Professor Nicole Soranzo, who's a research group leader at the Welcome Sanger Institute, however worked in industry before, and Dr. Darren Logan, who's the head of research at Mass Pet Care and used to be a research group leader at the Sanger prior to making the move to industry. So thank you both for being here. Can you please tell us a little bit about your career path and your journey through industry and academia, starting with you, Darren? Sure, yeah. So um, I, I had a very traditional academic career path. I did a PhD in Edinburgh, the University of Edinburgh. I did a postdoc in the United States, in San Diego, and, um, and was very fortunate to be pretty successful in that postdoc and was able to get a, a career fellowship to join uh, the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute as a group leader. I did that for six years and, and loved it. actually had a great time. And frankly, one day uh, I got a call from someone that said that we would like you to come and work for us. And um, I had no intention of leaving academia and went along for an interview. And then over those conversations that followed over the coming months sort of, I guess, changed my mindset a little bit and, and opened my eyes to new opportunities and, and then just made the, the, the plunge to jump across. And um, I've now been doing this role as the head of research at um, Mars Pet Care for five years. And, and I love it and, and frankly have no intention of going back. Though, of course, I may get a phone call from somebody else one day and change my mind. Nice. Thank you. And you, Nicole? Hi. Um, yes, I had a slightly longer, um, lo more long-winded career, and uh, but I, I, I graduated in Milano. I did my PhD in Scotland and I did a couple of postdocs uh, uh, where I transitioned from plant genetics to human genetic research. After that, due to a combination of personal and, uh, and professional reasons, including a relocation of my husband to the States, I moved to the States and took up a position in industry with uh, Johnson Johnson Pharma. I was there for two years and uh, I came back to the UK after that and took on a position at the Sanger Institute, first as a staff scientist and then as a group leader. And so I've been a group leader now uh, for the, the past uh, 13 years at Sanger. And was it a conscious decision that you thought, I, I like academia better, therefore I'm going to move to academia? You sort of just... Being in industry for me was uh, very helpful because, you know, I, I had a, a past in, in academia, in, in, in a university setting, then I experienced industry. And then the Sanger is actually a really good mix between the two in that you have academic freedom and uh, pursue the, the most important academic questions. But at the same time, you have uh, the funding and infrastructure that being a co-funded institute that allows you also to set up big science visions like the ones that we all worked on at the Sanger Institute. So I think it would have been hard to go back to a traditional academic environment with all its rank writing and limited resources, but this was really, for me, it was actually the, the optimum uh, situation. And uh, spending a time in, in industry made me realize also the importance of having the freedom and, and being able to be my own agent. And indeed, since then, I have uh, recently taken a, a new appointment as head of genomics for a new life science in institute in Milano, where I'm going to be moving to next year. And again, continuing that tradition of a co-funded institute where we can do ambitious genomic projects. And Darren, why is it that you love so much industry right now that you wouldn't <laughs> think about moving back unless you received another call? I think for for me, and I would agree with Nicole and her point there about how you know the Sanger Institute itself is is a interesting, feels like a bridging type of environment. It makes it easier to go from one to the other through there. I think for me that the major difference actually, and 
is that I realized that I was, I was quite a people person. I really got a lot of enjoyment from developing people and investing in people. And while, of course, in some ways, academia is fantastic for that, right? The relationships that you have as a mentor for young students and your ability to, to help and develop them is very uh, empowering and enriching. I do think academia as just as a, as a function doesn't really select for investing in people, right? It selects for investing in delivery of science. And many people are able to, to, to bridge those two really effectively. But actually, we're, you know, we're not trained as scientists how to manage people, develop people. Many people learn to do those things themselves. But it almost, in some cases, selects against that in some ways, I think. And, and what I realized is that that's what gives me great enjoyment. And so to move to an environment whereby, and certainly where I work, is, is a huge investment in people. To be trained, to be a manager, to spend you know, most of my time now really is just managing people through a function of science. And I really enjoy that. I get great pleasure from it. And I think that's the aspect of it that really made a difference for me. And that's not to say I couldn't do that in, in academia. I think I did. I think I do it better here because my environment enables me and supports me better in doing that. Do you feel that right now it's a bit saturated and postdocs, they, they feel like it's a constant struggle to find positions? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it is hard, particularly the step between PhD and postdoc and then the postdoc to the senior position, it, it's incredibly hard. And, uh, and perhaps you can go back to these teams, it's particularly hard for because it, it's also a stage of life where... People start having families, they often have a two-body problem, you know, so there's multiple careers to accommodate, they start having children. It is a critical stage of life anyway, because of the typical age of, uh, of PhDs and postdocs. I think the reality is that, uh, you know, and we see that even in younger children, you know, the, the expectation that is put on people in terms of achieving titles, experience, uh, it's so much higher, so much greater than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It is a really high bar to clear, and there's obviously few positions to come by, particularly for people that, due to personal or, or other reason, cannot relocate easy, as easily as, as others. Going back to the point of, that Darren was making of also selecting, there are certain traits that are selected in, in this kind of critical race to the, the top. They might come natural, more natural to some people than others, and, and, and you know this is also why many of us are working really hard to increase opportunities for a more diverse workforce and more diverse type of leadership. It is true, it is difficult and competitive and, uh, you know, some, sometimes also uh, a little bit, the usual phrase of being in the right place at the right time is actually, you know, that kind of a, a serendipity element that uh, it's quite hard to pin down, but it can often play an important part. Right. What about your thoughts, Darren? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think... Um... My reflection of academia is the stochasticity, the randomness element of it is a much bigger factor in academia than in many other industries, particularly in industry. I feel it almost feels like an industry because there is maybe a luxury of time due to the, the length of your career, right? And the security of, of contracts, et cetera, that the sort of random events have a small, smaller impact in your success. And I actually think academia is an incredibly challenging industry. Really, it is. It's, it's, it's It's brutal, right? It's a, such a, a narrow pyramid. And actually, a lot of the, the training is focused on reaching the, the, the sort of summit of that pyramid versus thinking laterally and other opportunities. And of course, we know many, most people move laterally, actually, right? But often many people, it's made to feel if you, if you don't succeed at that pyramid, you're a failure. And of course, that's not true. We know that's not true, but that's often how people are made to, to, to feel, rightly or wrongly. 
I think in, in industry, there's many more lateral opportunities for success. And that then gives people the opportunity to find their own path to success. So I didn't see it when I was in there. I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I didn't see that. It's only when I'm outside of it, I look and man, that's tough. That's a really tough gig. Um, and, and, and there's not that many benefits that goes along with it, right? You're not paid particularly well. You don't have a particularly great job, uh, good job security. What you do have, without a doubt, is, is that remarkable ability, that, that sort of eureka feeling is very hard to replicate anywhere else, right? And, and that's, the, that's the big miss, right? That, there's something very special about that. And I think you've got to ask yourself, is, is it worth it? And if it is worth it for you, to, for that feeling, and, that, that, and, it, and it works for the rest of your life, and you have that bit of luck, it's a fantastic career. But um, there's a lot of people who will never reach that pinnacle who are still in the race, right? And, and I think it's really tough for those people. Yeah, and you mentioned there are some traits that might be advantageous for some people to succeed in academia. What do you think the main factors? Yeah, I mean, I think the main determinant is great rather than anything else. You know, the ability to stick through the highs and lows and maintain your vision and the process. And it is often set difficult path. There's many failures along the way and its ability to stick to your vision no matter what these failures are. And I think... It, Although I think science can be brutally competitive, I actually always found a, a great source of strength in, in the collaborations and work, the teamwork and being able to work with team, not only with your own team, but also with collaborators. And you do realize at the end of the day, you're part of a fairly small ecosystem or universe where your competitors can also be you know, friends and, and trusted collaborators. And part of that well, actually makes this journey, you know, despite the, the difficulties, very enjoyable and, and, and worthwhile is that sense of being part of a community that works uh, towards common goals, which is really biological understanding. So sometimes I think about a group leader as somewhat a, an entrepreneur, you know, like a CEO of a small company where you just have to have that kind of vision and uh, be your own agent somewhat, right? And so, you know, that obviously carries risk. I mean, then some people might be more or less uh, risk averse in, you know, the way they want to just perceive their life. And, and so this is an element of that. I must say that, uh, you know, obviously being part uh, of a supportive environment where these risks uh, are buffered by real support, uh, uh, encouragement and, and resources to allow you to succeed, like the Sanger Institute is, is very important. I was thinking some of my experiences in, in industry versus academia and that kind of path that Darren was referring to in terms of you know career progression. It is often easier in, in, in industry to have a clarity about a, a career progression path. You know, what are the steps you need to take? What are the achievements? And what support is there to help you do that? Whereas typically in academia, you kind of you kind of learn as you go. And, 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 and that is actually where there is a difference, is a real difference between having good mentors or not, or supportive environment or not, and also where potentially it can be opportunity for implicit or explicit bias to be, you know, discriminating certain types of personalities or other. So I think in industry, I found the whole process of being a career milestones and, and progression a lot more clearly mapped and articulated and supported than, than you would normally have in an academic environment. And obviously, again, this is a kind of thing that can benefit some people more than others. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that stands out in particular for you, Darren? Yeah, I, I, the way I like to think about this is almost like um, the academic world, weirdly for a science, actually one of the characteristics I think makes real success is true creativity, because the, the, the palette, the, the broad palette that you operate in is infinite. And so it's can you find creative ways to work your way through it? 
the combination of resilience and creativity is a great combination of skills for people in academia. I find the scientists in industry tend to be thrive more around structure and regulation and operating in more controlled environments, and they feel much more comfortable there. And everything is is a little bit more mapped out, and so and they're maybe less comfortable with ambiguity, as you have to be comfortable within uh, in academia, otherwise you will not thrive. And of course, both are strengths and 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 minuses. So the way I sort of see it is, there's actually I see people fall into two camps quite simply. It's my role now. I, I manage a team of of you know ninety people, and so it's very quick, easy to spot those who will thrive in an industrial environment and those who possibly will less so and maybe more thrive in an academic environment. And um, and there's a rare group that, that actually can do both, but it, it is quite binary, I feel. And so, and what's, of course, encouraging about that is there's great opportunities. There's, there's, as a scientist, there can be a great opportunity for you to thrive. It's just recognizing what's the right one for you. Maybe you can talk briefly about whether you, you work in a startup, in a small team, or in a more established company with a big team. You have to do more things if you're in the startup and be more flexible. Yeah, yeah, I see. I mean, maybe that's the third group, right? Maybe there's that. There's the big industry, the traditional large-scale industries, and then the startup environment. I guess what I, I, I've started to see a little bit more, and maybe Nicole sees the same over the last couple of years, is this this sort of bridging between academia and startup. People have got a foot in both and move quite comfortably between both, and it doesn't be not surprising because you know I think a lot of the skill sets are the same, right? That that creativity, that that ambiguity, that ability to hustle and and, and move and be creative, which is much more typical of a startup environment. And so I, I think um, that might be sometimes a bit of a bridge across um, from academia into that environment before, you know, of course, startups all want to grow into be large organizations as well. And so they've still got to go through that journey themselves and the people in those have to go through that journey. So, so I, th- I agree. I think there's a third sort of hybrid that sits in the, uh, in, in, in the startup world. Yeah, I think it's it's really a gradient reality because part of the you know the things we mentioned are around the culture of the of the institution you know and, and different industries will have very different uh, cultures so these are broad generalizations and the startups obviously have a huge elements of risk and entrepreneurship so again uh, again very much more similar to what we described for academia and and, and vice versa some of the for instance the perceived stability of industry I don't think is really that justified the week I joined Johnson and Johnson, they had a massive redundancy drive. A lot of people were laid off. That perceived security of industry versus academia is not always there, and vice versa. So you know, I think as usual, things are a lot more nuanced than 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 they are portrayed in simplistic terms. In my case, for instance, when I was working in industry, I really felt uh, the lack of that freedom and that self agency. I really needed that to to really feel engaged with my work and to thrive and. It is always very good, I think, for so for young people, for instance, to try out different environments because this is really where you find out what is more suitable for your for your skills. And at the moment, you know, the way even many industries are set up, they have a very academic mindset, and the transition in and out is incredibly more straightforward than it used to be in the past. So I think many people will see these moves back and forth, and they really follow either the moment of interest or their ability to deliver on what their vision is in that particular point in time or you know simply opportunities for growth yeah i think there's an important message because people sometimes struggle so much to make a choice thinking it's going to be permanent and it's going to decide the rest of their lives and it's a myth because they can always go back and try something else what about achieving goals do you think 
the goals in industry are more achievable than in academia or vice versa or there's no such a thing as a comparison? What do you think? I think the question really is what type of goals do you want to achieve? In industry, what I see, what, what I get benefit from and I see as around me is in a strange way, the science that you do relatively quickly can be very tangible, right? So you, we can do science here and within two years, it is in the hands of millions of consumers and you can go into a supermarket or in, go into a veterinary clinic and, and you, can, you can pick it up and say, I did this. And that's quite a remarkable thing, actually, right? It's a great thing to show your kids or your family. <laughs> and that's true of some people in, in, in academia, but actually the vast majority in academia, you're building incrementally, right, over a career. And maybe at the end of your career, you can say, look what I did. And of course, that's not true for all people. Some people do amazing breakthroughs and their papers turn into, to, you know, to clinics, interventions, and that's remarkable too. But I think in general, if you generalize, I think that's the difference, right? The, the tangible versus the intangible. And I think in academia, the value of, of being able to, to the, the self-value of finding something new and knowing it's making a difference can be very powerful, that novelty, but, but it, it kind of sits within. And the value you gain from it comes from the proxies, right? The papers, the recognition, the invitations to conferences, the fellowships, the prizes, versus that very tangible, I made this type of thing, which you tend to see more in the industrial and startup world. Yeah, I think, again, it's difficult to place an absolute value on, on, uh, on deliverables and achievables because in reality is all of us have different uh, values and we measure success and fulfillment in very different ways. So I think for me, it's, it's quite difficult to put one over the other. At the end of the day, what really gets you out of bed in the morning, what really makes you want to be your absolute best and you, you do your absolute best. And I think, you know, this is the kind of the reward. You know, I am particularly not driven by recognition prizes or anything like that for me it's just about intellectual freedom and the pursuit of my my intellectual interest and 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 seeing a good job done you know in terms of what science i want to do it is again a very very personal set of motivators and choices and 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 as well as a matching your skill set i think We've seen a lot of people leave academia for industry particularly in, in the human genetics field and in the people working in biomedicine and that perhaps is signaling that the, the rewards coming with the academic career are diminishing in terms of, you know, say publication is becoming harder, getting a you know, paper published, the grants, the attrition rates on grants uh, application are really high. And so it is, again, often the reward uh, risk ratio is also different at different times. There's a lot of people that left academia to do biomedical research in industry because they find it easier to get things done or they find more fulfillment without less, less of that kind of negative uh, you know, environment. And so this obviously needs to be considered because we need to consider whether this type of current situation is going to deplete the, the pool of academics in favor of other uh, industries. I think at the end of the day, you will see that the people will move to environments where they feel they can fulfill their mission and abilities at the best. And, and, and it's possible that at this stage, this is better achieved through an, an industry environment. So do you think people are happier in industry? Is it a lighter <laughs> environment in general because they have less to worry about? I don't think so, actually, no. I think... Um... Well, I'll be very honest, right? I, part of the attraction was I, I, you know, I doubled or almost tripled my, my salary. And with that comes a feeling, well, you know, I can go and play golf and I'll have loads more time because I won't have to, you know, write grants all the time. Money doesn't buy happiness. It, buys, it solves problems. There's no doubt about it. 
didn't buy me more time. I'm as busy today as I was in academia. I work as late in the evening as I did then, because ultimately, you know, if you're motivated and driven, you will, you will find things to, to, to drive you. Is it happier? No, it's just different. It's a different environment. And I think um, there's people in an in industry who are very unhappy because it doesn't meet their needs. And there's people in academia who are incredibly happy because it meets their needs. And I'm quite a flexible, pragmatic person. And I recognize there's things I don't get in the industry that I got in academia. I, I remember days at the Sanger Institute with, with Nicole where, you know, you'd spend a whole day just chatting with people over coffee and just brainstorming and thinking of amazing things. And you never do that in, in industry. You're always way too busy doing you know, this meeting or that meeting. But I also remember great frustrations in, in academia, just jumping through hoops to try and get, get funding to do something. And, you know, I can, I can get someone to give me a million dollars in an afternoon and, and get it done. It swings and roundabouts. And I think to Eloquence Nicole's earlier point, I think what's really important when you're deciding which is right for you is to understand yourself well. You know, if you, if you really explore yourself, what motivates you, what makes you happy, what do you want out of life, you can find the right environment for you. But you won't understand what makes you happy unless you understand what makes you happy, right? Your environment won't be happy. Only you have to understand what's right about you first. So I think there's something really about really understanding yourself before choosing the right path for you. What if you think you really love the environment, you love to be in academia, but you think you can't afford a house if you stay or you cannot have children? Because a lot of women, they feel they have to delay maternity if they, they want to stay in academia. So do you think industry is friendlier for women in that sense? I think Nicole should answer that question. For, I've got an opinion, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's probably not for me to say because I'm not a woman. Um, what, what would be your opinion on that, Nicole? I don't have an opinion about the academic, the industry side, which obviously you can talk to with more, um, more knowledge. I mean, it is tough, right? And, you know, it is tough... Uh, On, on both sides. And I think part of that is not so much the timing, but uh, the, the support that the Institute gives you. And, and, and that's actually hugely important on equalizing opportunities for career and also for people, for instance, with different uh, wealth or socioeconomic background or whatever. Again, it's the incentive structure, the protection, making sure that institutions or companies are really uh, attuned to the needs of uh, that particularly critical phase of life and some of the hurdles that, uh, that people could have, and particularly women. But it's not only women, you know, it's disabled people, people from different backgrounds. It's much wider than just, uh, than just a gender issue. It is really about uh, the environment being responsive to the individual needs and providing flexibility and support and role models and coaching and, you know, examples and all of that. So I think it can, some industry can be equally ruthless and quite, quite equally difficult for women. I think maybe the, the incentive structure is slightly different. So you have a higher salary, you're more likely to be able to afford a non-year childcare. When you don't have to move countries just to pursue a faculty position, then it might be easier to plan a family around it. But uh, I don't think there are inherent barriers in any of those two environments that cannot be overcome with will. The cost of this should not be on the individual, but should be on the on the employer, right? And, and, and there is no reason why employers can develop, you know, academic world, there's flexibility in the academic job that is quite conducive to actually having family or, or you can work late, but leave work early if you need to. So I don't think there are inherent reasons why academia cannot be as supportive as industry or vice versa. And it's really about uh, allocation of resources and, again, research, you know, culture, the, the institution, etc. I guess my dad, you know, I think academia is essentially an incredibly archaic system, right? It, it was built for gentlemen, scientists, right? 
100 years ago. That was how it was devised. And of course, it's evolved a lot since then, but the underlying structure remains the same. The underlying structure is not particularly well set up for, for, for you know, women having children as it stands today. That is not to say there's many changes that's not been put in place. And there's many environments, institutions, universities, labs that can take advantage of, of some of the positives of the structures to really make it a great thing. So I think there's greater variation probably within academia. You can, can, you can have a great experience or an awful experience and it, and it can vary a lot. Whereas I think it's more homogeneous in industry by its nature and by that probably a lower risk, right? Because you, it's, it's, it's easier to, to know what you're going to get. I think there's, you know, again, positives, negatives. And again, it, it, it probably therefore it's around being really clear and careful about, about what you want to, to do. Of course, that shouldn't have to be the case, right? But but I think that's the reality of it. I've known many cases where really, people have really struggled while having children in academia, but also others who, who to Nicole's point, has, has seen it as a huge liberating experience because of that inherent creativity and flexibility that enables you. So it's a really difficult one to say. I think it's a very individual thing. But I think you need to compare a group leader or a department chair to a CEO. Industry suffers the same problem. Now, there's very few women in leadership positions. Certainly, the ratio is not 50-50 even there. So there are clearly inherent barriers to progression in every place, right? And so I know many, many people that work in industry and, and where the career was limited by having many children and having that flexibility to, you know, step out of work when they need to, you know, meetings set up really late at night. So again, I think these are viable career options in both cases, but what really is needed is a will to eradicate some of these barriers. And someone I know is struggling to make the choices. They said they've been working as a research assistant in academia and they love it, but they question the financial aspect of it. Maybe the high cost of living, if they stay in academia, they're not, never going to be able to afford a house. But they have a PhD lined up for them. And the question was if you think it's worth it to go through the PhD if you're planning on leaving to industry? Yeah, I'll go first in the answer to that question. I think, I think it absolutely is. I and mean, of course, it depends on what industry, I would say. In my industry, I think that um, entering with a PhD opens up so many more doors in industry today. I mean, it's kind of like great inflation, right? I think there was a time when nobody, everyone had a bachelor's degree and, and now so many people have PhDs and master's that, that, you, that, that it's very difficult, but not impossible to progress, uh, if you wish to progress, through seniority, even in an industry without a PhD. There is people in my team, I have people in relatively senior positions who do not have PhDs and have demonstrated their ability. Of course, they could have PhDs, it's just they haven't done it, right? They've clearly got all the skills and they can demonstrate that. I think it, it makes it harder. So I, I would say, you know, for someone like that, I would say, you know, what is your long-term ambition? If your goal is to move into industry and progress and become increasingly senior roles, which comes with more money, of course, and more responsibility, then I think a PhD is as important as it would be to progress in, in the academic world. I think if you, if you are looking to, to move across and maybe progress less, maybe, and, and have a relatively more junior role that doesn't require a PhD and, and, and still earn more money, perhaps, then possibly not. I'm not sure it differs that much between academia and industry in that sense. Someone said that the current problem with industry is how it works is prioritized over the best possible solution to the problem. How much of this can be addressed if one switches to academia? <laughs> I think that's a fair comment. I've been somewhat critical of academia, I guess, in this conversation so far. So maybe turn, turn the, the attention back on industry. Where, where does it weak? 
It is weak, that is true. It's driven by efficiency, often. It is also driven by um, structure and, and process, which inhibits creativity. And so you often find the, the, the very traditional route. You don't get that serendipitous solutions that often you get in academia because you will follow the path where it takes you and that leads you to wonderful, amazing things um, versus the, the path that the rails that you're on take you in industry. So I think that's a, that's a fair comment. I have seen people who, who really struggle in industry with, with that lack of creativity. They find something that they know is an amazing finding and they just need to follow it off on a different path. And it's, that's not what they're there for, right? They're not, that's not why industries does. So I think that's fair. And I think, that, again, that comes down to that's a compromise, right? There's many positives. That's a compromise. Is that a compromise you feel comfortable with and that works for you? And if it's not, maybe it's not right for you. And again, it goes back to the point we made before that is not just one versus the other, but there's a huge gradation, you know, so biotech and all these companies that have been out set up to develop a single product, I have exactly that an element of, you know, great innovation and great uh, uh, creativity and also potentially a lot of risk, you know, so I think originality doesn't belong to the academic system, quite the opposite. And going back to the point of people trying to decide a path, at the end of the day, you can have a lot of opportunities in your head that you can dis- you can choose from, but the, the reality is that your real choice only comes when you have a job offer, right? Before that is all hypothetical. And often you'll see that actually is the recruiter that makes that choice for you because they'll be able to pick on your skills, abilities, inclinations, etc. right? And so... And that's what I always say to trainees is that you think you have these endless possibilities of choice, but the reality is that you have areas that potentially interest you that not normally all materialize in a real possibility. Sometimes you agonize, you agonize on you know one choice versus the other, whereas the reality is that it's it's a lot easier to make a choice once, first of all, you've gone through the interview process, you have an opportunity to learn about the environment, how the companies works, the potential co-workers, et cetera, et cetera. And then also that also allows you to go through this process of understanding what ultimately gets you excited about you know, a role versus another. So just to give an example, when I left the industry and I came back to the UK, I was in the States, I applied for three, three different positions. One was the Sanger Institute, one was an academic environment, and one was industry. I was offered two out of these three jobs. But, you know, there were three jobs in three different domains. And just going through the interview process and seeing the place and thinking about what that job entails made the choice for me very easy. So, again... Rather than spending months or years just really agonizing about uh, the right choice for you, just just go through, apply to jobs, see what selects you for interview, go through the interview process, ask all the questions you want to ask, try to get a feel for the environment and, and the role and what it entails and what doesn't. And often you'll find that that choice that you were so agonizing about is actually becomes quite easy for you, quite natural. And, and the choice really only comes when you have a job offer, right? So until then, you're not committed to anything. You just have the opportunity to explore. So you are taking your early uh, times of your career and just not being so set about a specific path to follow, but just to, exp- you know, take your time to explore and, and do internship or whatever. But it's often what leads you then to find the, the, the path that is right for you. Thank you. And also, uh, we're just considering either one or the other. But I heard of examples that people managed to do both. They managed to keep somehow 25% work in academia and then 75% in the industry. And they managed to gain that flexibility that they can have a little bit of both worlds. Everything is possible if you really like 
<laughs> both aspects. You don't need to, to make one choice, although it's rare, but it's doable. I think that comes later in your career. I mean, at the beginning, it's quite different. You know, first of all, you need to be immersed in the environment to really learn. There are often not only conflicting mindsets, but also conflicting practical things, intellectual property, and you know, being able to have, having to maintain your your two jobs separate. So I don't think this is something that one should start with in the beginning of the career. I think it's much more productive to just say, I'm going to just work for industry for a year, you know, and you get to a point where your titles will not be so affected by year off that you cannot go back to academia if you want to. So, you know, it's just uh, really about t- taking the time to fully immerse you in a different work environment. Yeah, I would, I would just agree with that. I think well, that's what I thought I would do. And actually, I proposed to do, and my boss advised me strongly not to do it. I'm really glad she did. It would have been very, very difficult for for the same reasons Nicole indicated. I think the better mindset is that nothing is forever. I think it's fine to go and immerse yourself in it, but the point is that there's no reason you you can't go back in either direction. And and I think that would have been 10 years ago. That would have been probably not true. It would have been hard to do it. I think that's much less so the case today. And the reason being... I think is because as they're coming closer together, actually, one. And secondly, and, I, and this is the, the, the drum that I beat frequently, is that um, I think both can learn so much from each other. As someone spending a year or two in industry will be so enriching for an actor. Someone like Nicole, for example, right? That, that's is a great example of someone who I'm sure all the learnings, positive and negative, um, are hugely advantageous for her in her academic role. Uh, and likewise, when I look back to my academic role, I, I think, my God, if, if I knew what I knew now from what I've learned in this, and I, I could be so much better at that. And so part of me does want to go back to academia simply just so I can take all those learnings and apply them. I think that's that's the message I would send to people that, you know, it's actually not such a big jump, right? Yes, you, you, you'll learn. You might like it, you might not. But you know what? If you don't like it, whatever way you move, you just go back again. And I think that's that's the really empowering. And, uh, and, and I think once you recognize that and you accept that, it, it makes it much easier. It doesn't seem such a big jump to make anymore. And I've been reading a book now called Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I'm not mistaken. And it talks exactly about that, how picking up more skills make people way more successful in general. So I, I think I know now why you prefer niche. I think you mentioned creativity in academia is your favorite aspect. Is that correct, Nicole? For me, yes. Um, it's really freedom. I realized when I was working in industry, because so much of uh, what we you do is really dictated by priorities that are set above your head. You might have academic freedom to work. You know, I was in a relatively academic environment, but the reality is that the mission of what you're trying to do is very set uh, often above your head. And, and so I found that very disengaging. I really need to be engaged with really driving the process of, you know, what do we do day in, day out. And, you know, I felt a sense of detachment. You go and work and you apply your skills, etc. But for me, I really felt I wasn't motivated in the same way I feel in, in academia. And I think that that is, for me, that was actually the, the, the main point. There was a a little bit also, you know, the, the process, the milestones to take and all the things that, you know, the structure that, uh, that Darren mentioned. For me, I realize this is really not something that suits me. But I think ultimately the real motivator was that, knowing that in the good or in the bad, I was the one who's calling the shots for what we're going to do. It can happen in an industry that a research program that you put a lot of thought and attention to gets called off because of commercial. And to me, it made me feel like I didn't want to try as hard because I 
what I was putting my heart and soul into might be called off at some point. And, you know, it's, it's more that. That was for me the main motivator. And Darren, you said in industry, in your case, was the people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, would, I think Nicole is absolutely correct, and I get that. I think she's being at the Sanger Institute gives you is, is kind of unique in that sense because it gives you that freedom. I, I often argue that in academia, there's an illusion of freedom in some places because ultimately you're still constrained by who will give you a grant to do the work, right? And, and so you're actually much more constrained than you might think you are. People who are very good at getting grants, who have lots of grants, or maybe somewhere at the Sanger Institute where there's quite a lot of core money, but, but nonetheless, you're absolutely correct. There's much more constraint. And it, yes, indeed, it is. I would say for me, it's about the people. There's nothing stopping you being exactly the same in, in, in academia, right? I know many people, former colleagues who are amazing managers and mentors and put those principles in place. For, for me, it was, I guess, the feeling that the, the reward and the recognition of investing in people, that is what I'm here for. That's what I do. That's what I, I'm recognized for versus investing in people as a, as a function of delivering something else. Uh, and for me, I think that was important. I almost felt often I was doing the right thing, but it was it was inhibiting my, my success, the perception of my success. And, and I struggled a bit with that, just out of pure fairness. <laughs> so that, that's, that's what works for me personally. But what I, what I have huge respect for, uh, and, and I will say this, is that the, the people who are able to do work in the academic environment and still deliver those things. And for me, that's the sweet spot, actually. Um, and there's plenty of them. They're unicorns. Neither are they everywhere, but there are plenty of them. And I think um, if, you, if you can find that environment in academia, then you can have many of the, all the positives and protect against many of the negatives. And of course, what academia needs to do is recognize those people and create more of them to make it a much better environment. Yeah. Because my next question would be then what you like the least on, on each. And then, so you sort of answer that question, I guess, for you is that aspect that maybe you don't invest enough in people in academia. I'd say, I'd say something slightly different from my sense is, is in industry, what frustrates me the most is um, my environment is relative conservative mindset. So actually, it's, it's much more risk averse, probably not so in the startup world, but in the more big industry world, it's surprisingly risk averse. From a scientist perspective, this is such an obvious thing to do. You know, for a multitude of process and organizational and political reasons, you cannot get it through. It can be very frustrating. And of course, you've no one else to answer to in academia but yourself and your grant funder, right? And so that can be a real frustration thing. Um, so that, that's my biggest negative. And your biggest negative, Nicole, in academia? <laughs> Maybe not so much for me, I guess, but, uh, you know, being quite lucky, I think it, it just seen the struggle of the early careers and in a way, creating an environment where everybody can thrive. It is often a concern, right? As I said, especially in environments that are, for instance, less well-structured, less well-funded. If you're a postdoc in a, in a university department and you're isolated, you know, you are at the mercy of, of your supervisor, right? And, and I think I do see that... Uh, this doesn't create a fair uh, environment uh, for everybody. How do you work uh, with uh, exerting change in a way that is real and measurable and not just uh, paying lip service to some equality and diversity and inclusion agenda that is really true in, in words, but not in fact, you know, just creating really opportunities and, and for change, because obviously change is uh, it's difficult, is expensive, challenges the norm and... Uh, Bringing more of that people component that Darren was talking about to environments which are less, uh, perhaps less receptive because of infrastructural or in, indeed uh, real reason or cultural reason. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's that the ability to 
support the diverse career paths, to support diverse candidates and, and to provide equal opportunities. As I said, I don't think there's necessarily any difference in terms of what can be achieved. It's more the inability to achieve it given, given the, the institutions. Okay, great. So we're coming to the end of our discussion, but you have a chance to give a take-home message. Is there any last words for someone who was reading the size of it at the moment? Please go ahead, Darren. Yeah, I guess I guess my final message would be I think my greatest frustration uh, when I when I look at um, people coming out of academia or interested in moving to industry, I find it very sad that the, the academics, especially young academics, so undervalue themselves. They value so much about what they know, what they've learned, their technical expertise. They do not fully appreciate how broad their expertise is. Right? They don't recognize that their ability to negotiate, to contract, to 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 present. They have all these skills, but but they they don't realize it. They think that they're an expert in their PhD subject, and of course, when when they then go to an industrial environment that recognizes and values all of those those broad sets of skills, they have them, but they don't know how to articulate they have them because they don't even realize they have them. And I think, and and this is my my greatest frustration is like there's so much potential there that, that's missing and unrecognized among the individuals themselves, and therefore, if you don't recognize it yourself, how can you help other people recognize it? And so my, my ask of people is to, you know, to, to have confidence in yourself and think broader than your technical expertise. That opens so many doors to you. Everybody has them, right? They just gotta, you just got to recognize them. And so that would be my ask and plea of people as they, as they develop and, and think about their future careers, think broader than their PhD title. Oh, great. Thank you. And you, Nicole? Yeah, I think it's along the same lines. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back at some of the things I would like to tell to myself a few years back. I, I think I worried too much at, at certain times. Being confident in yourself and being able to just go out and try things and and in a way enjoy the journey as well, right? You know, embrace this with uh, optimism and with uh, really embracing the human experience as well as the professional experiences is something I would recommend. As I said, you know, sometimes we can be our worst enemies in, in stopping us from trying out new things and embracing change. And then we look back and we think, actually, it wasn't as hard as I thought or difficult. I guess a message to for people to really have faith in themselves and, believe it, and really just throw themselves in the ring. They'll find, uh, find out through action what they can do. And so that would be my message. Well, you ended with a great motivational message, inspiring <laughs> for me as well. Thank you so much both for being here. And uh, can you share with us how our listeners can find you on social media or email? Darren? Sure, yeah. You can. Uh, I'm on most social media. You can find me on Twitter, my name, Darren Logan. And I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me, Darren Logan. And I have all my contact details there. And I always welcome people connecting with me if they, if they have any questions or looking for advice or, or um, suggestions of, of how to you know, access the industrial or academic world. So please, if you hear this and you want to reach out, please do so. Brilliant. Nicole? Yeah, same for me. I'm mostly on Twitter. I don't do LinkedIn so much, but I'm, I'm, I can be Googled and found and very, very happy and receptive to talk to people. I also would encourage people to look for opportunities for mentoring from you know, institutions like the Academy of Medical Sciences or many other places that offer mentoring schemes. And so those are also great opportunity to learn and, and go through that process of discovering one's strength and, uh, uh, and skills. Great. Darren also wrote an article about it for the Royal Society. Is it Darren? That's right. Yeah. I'm going to put it on our resources in the podcast description as well. So 
Fala, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter at mental underscore podcast, where you let you know when our new episodes are released. You can listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud by searching for your digital mental podcast. You can also reach us by email, so please send your comments and questions to inquiries at yourdigitalmentor.net. As always, information on the episode and how to reach us will be in the description box, including how to connect with our guests and links to more information and resources. And finally, our goal is for the podcast to be shared as a resource, so please remember to tell people about us. Thank you again and see you in two weeks. This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a program which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine, and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire, and transform careers worldwide. This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sanger Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sanger's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth.